Welcome to another episode of From Red to Black, a Homicide Life on the Street podcast. I'm Joe. This is Daniel. This week we're going to be talking about Nearer My God to Thee. It originally aired Friday at 10 o'clock, October the 14th, 1994. It was directed by Tim Hunter. George or Jorge Zamacona was one of the writers and Tom Fontana contributed as well. Uh, real brief synopsis. When the winner of the city's Good Samaritan Award is murdered, Jean is there for call to help the new female night shift commander. Uh, also in a big subplot, Mildred and Munch have plans to buy a bar. And Bo and his wife separate. Kay gets caught in the middle. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of storylines in this that like almost feel like cousins to homicide storylines and not really not really like the show before. This is the first episode of the third season. That's correct. So there's there's uh new people. There's new characters for sure. There's a lot of extras in this episode. A lot. They fill up the the precinct um a, like for the almost the entire episode. Um so this one feels a lot different than what we've seen before. Um I guess we'll start even the yeah like the first two scenes. So the first scene is there uh, it's it was a Bolander, Munch, and Lewis are in the break room, and they're watching this like soap opera, uh-huh. softcore porn yeah. thing, and Stan's t- going on about how much he doesn't like it. He and, doesn't like gratuitous sex. Yeah, and Munch is saying there's no such thing as gratuitous sex. Gratuitous violence, yes, but not sex. Huh. And then I guess Lewis is the one who like starts talking about how it's the network that makes them sex up the shows or Correct. whatever. Right. They take this the, the nudity out but they put the sex in. Yeah. And uh just a really like clever kind of meta tipping their hand about what we're going to see in this episode. Right. I wonder if that's also just a nice way of them to kind of like vent frustration maybe. I think so. Yeah. I thought it was also fascinating was Munch's comment about what the future of communications might be. Oh, yeah. That's... He nailed some things. <laughs> yeah, right Like 500 channels and less newspapers and more email. I mean, he didn't have it perfect, but that was that was darn, that was 20 years ahead of its time. Yeah, right. That was in 1990. This episode was, what did you say, 94 or whatever? Um, yeah, that's... He was... Absolutely on the money. Yep. Um, I, I, I was, I was, um, yeah, 90, 94, it's right. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I don't even think I had, I definitely didn't have the internet in my house in 94, yeah. but he was, uh, yeah, he was ahead of the curve. Yes. Um, that, that was quite interesting. Whoever wrote that. Yeah. Right. If, <laughs> if it was Jorge or Tom. Yeah. Never, I'm sure, did they think that someday... 24 years from them would two people weigh in on how accurate that prediction you're was right. but you're yeah right. they were they were absolutely right um so yeah so they're having this kind of conversation that is a taste of things to come from this episode where they're talking about how the networks uh you know sex up the shows try to spice it up and if you're any fan of homicide you know it's coming yeah you know they just don't do a scene like that laughs right you're like i can see what's coming yeah and it's uh, like we were saying before it, it's not even they're not talking as cops 
they're talking as writers. They're Correct. talking as television writers. Um, it's also, uh, I think, interesting to point out, it doesn't really make sense in the context of this episode, but that is a change that is applied to, uh, I guess, starting now in season three, that they never really let up on. Like, the show gets certain elements of, uh, like, sexier as the, sh- as the seasons go on. True. They kept trying to make it, I guess, more visually appealing. Um, yeah, it, there was much more color in the episode. It was more well lit. More, yeah, absolutely. And so the after the the credits, there's this really brief and I wrote the word in my notes beautiful long crane shot uh, scene where it shows the the like this what is it the spire of the church or whatever, and then down as an ambulance pulls up. It's all one continuous shot. And then down over to the dumpster with the body in it. Right. Uh, that was so... Uh, first of all, getting a crane uh-huh. doesn't seem like something Homicide uh-huh. right. probably even had a budget to do at some point. But it, it was this really well orchestrated and a perspective from the show that you never really saw in the first two seasons. That's a good point. Yeah, it was, I agree. It, it was jarring. It was jarring to me. Uh, and not necessarily in a in a bad way. I guess we can talk about that as it goes along. But um, the real, I guess, central story of this episode is that the, uh, what are they, second shift? Second shift commander, played by Isabella Hoffman, uh, um, Lieutenant Russert, Megan Russert. And she caught a red ball. Right. And I guess they kind of, they show you where Gaffney is on the totem pole of this, this group. First of all, everyone on this crew just seems like a total jerk. Yes. They just seem incompetent and mean. And Unfriendly. St- and stupid. Like, they're just dumb. Uh, and you really get a sense of how idiosyncratic our homicide crew is. Like, when they're in there interacting with them and you're like, oh boy, how is this person going to talk to Munch? Right. Or how is this person going to handle a, you know, the way And, and I think works. you begin to see how... The crew we know gets along in their dysfunctional way. Yeah, none of them are like that mean. Yeah, right, that right. terrible. Um, oh boy, and so terrible too. Uh, so we're kind of seeing the two teams uh, mash together here. They're trying to figure this out. I guess before the sun comes up, even they're trying to get this thing. Uh, trying to keep it out of the press. And um, so uh, G comes in. He talks to Russert. And uh, gets on a phone and has to call each one of his detectives on a phone to get them in. Yeah, to to further drive home just how on the money Munch was. Could you imagine having to call twelve <laughs> people, making right. twelve phone calls in a row now? Um, and, and by the way, the only one that can't come in is Crosetti because he's on vacation. Yeah, there, to, be, the, to be continued. Right, and more foreshadowing. Um, so. Uh, it cuts to Bo, who looks terrible. But he... Now, you want to stick with the Bo story the whole way now? Yeah, you want to tell yeah, that yeah. first? Yeah. Let's do that. So, yeah, it cuts cuts to Bo, who just, he looks... So disheveled and... Kind of, like, just greasy, and uh, they did a really great job of setting up that something terrible has happened to Bo, because yep. just in the first first time you see him, you're like, oh, wow, this guy's in, in rough shape. He really looks horrible. And we find out that he's been uh, thrown out of the house. Kay catches up to him, um, and he hasn't been home in, I guess, what, a couple, couple of weeks? days. Yeah, a couple days at yeah, this point. A couple point. days, I think. Um, and that's a, a story that 
we kind of piecemeal throughout the episode get another level of another level of um i guess the next time it kind of crops up is later in the episode when Kay gets a phone call in the office and it's Bo's wife right who's calling Kay and like Bo kind of has like an interesting line where he says like she didn't call me right you talk to her she doesn't really want to talk to me and he's right yeah yeah there's something weird kind of brewing over yeah. at the Felton household and um and, and we've seen this brewing for two years two seasons yeah uh we always got yeah. Bo's side of it. And that is another kind of like jarring difference in season three is that we do get his wife. I know I wrote her name down somewhere. Um, we get her side of the story a little bit. Beth. Beth, right. Um, so uh, Bo, um, sorry, he, I have Bo calls his, oh, he's going to, Break, he breaks the bad news to the friend of someone of the woman that was killed. And then um, I guess the next time this storyline kind of comes back up, which is just so brutal, is uh, Kay gets a phone call from Bo's son. Right. At uh-huh. night. Right. Like way up. Missing his bedtime. dad. Yeah, he's crying. Right. And we kind of catch like a little bit of that conversation where Bo's like kind of whispering, you know, tenderly into the, into the, the phone. Um, Is it right after that he goes try to see his kid at school? I mean, the next scene with him. No, no, no. It's a little bit, a little bit later, because um, I guess what they're what they're building at this point is they're giving some reason for Bo to really, really drive Kay into covering for him. And at first, I thought he meant cover with my wife. Right. Like I need you to just tell her. Right. I'm working or whatever. Um, because he reveals up top that he is seeing someone right. else. Right, he does say that. Yep. Um, and he has been for a while. Yeah. Uh, but we find out that really what Bo's asking for is for Kay to cover him at the office. Right. Like for this uh, red ball that they're trying to solve. Right. Um, which, I mean, even for Bo seems pretty low. <laughs> you know, like... But meanwhile, Kay's doing nothing except covering for Bo. Right. Um, and also, earlier in the episode, uh, Bo has delivered what seems like the most promising lead from this. I, You know, it was like, all right, good for him. It, sounds, it seems like the guy could use it. Yeah, it was it. good work. Yeah. Um, but, so he's taking all that goodwill that we've, <laughs> we've given him as viewers and just totally thrown it to the wind by uh, playing hooky. And um, that's when we find out where he's, where he's going. Right. She says, what are you going to do? What are you, a milkman? Because it's early. But he wants to go see his kid at school. Yeah. And doesn't really see him. Yeah. Doesn't talk to him. Yeah, he yells out, the kid kind of looks, and then the kid, the kid goes, goes to away. school. Um, uh, it's a sad scene now. So sad. So sad. Um, and, again, this week, I feel like I know so much about these characters' backgrounds without ever really experiencing them. Uh, in the first two seasons, you do get some flavor in order to fill out these characters they go into their home lives and who they are as people and but you've never actually seen them right so that was so different to see Beth driving the car up to school true true and you know it's her immediately right the kid gets out uh yeah it was that was that was strange um later in the episode when we actually talk to Beth and uh I I'll, I'll liken it to 
I forget. I think it's the second season of Cheers, the first episode. They leave the bar. And that moment for me was so strange. To watch a show that you get so stitched into, <laughs> right. it's so so jarring to leave the bar. They go to, right. uh, what's his name's apartment or whatever. Um, but it, this w- had a similar effect for me, where it was like, this world is so much bigger than we got before, but I feel like that narrowed focus, that narrowed attention just on the detectives, the lives through them, was like such a strong characteristic of this show. That to see that, I mean, maybe you can only do that for so long before it, you know, becomes boring or whatever. But that was, I thought that was such a unique and strange phenomenon for this show. Yeah, it, it was a departure. Yeah. Um, so he, uh, he goes to see his son at school, and then kind of like as we're at this point where Bo is playing hooky and he's out there, uh, we get to a moment where G tells Russell, get out of here, go home, yes. and go be with your kid. Now, before that happens, Bo goes home and kind of breaks into his house. Right. Um, really, we, we don't know what for. We think it's to pick up a suit. We're not sure. He has to break in because the keys have been changed and his wife is there. Yeah. And what follows is weird yeah. on many levels. So, I, yeah, like I I feel like in the interactions, like you knew that he had a troubled relationship, that Bo Felton was always in marital problems or experiencing marital problems. Uh, this episode like almost goes like way heavy-handed in explaining that by making Beth out to be like psychotic. Yeah, she's a little crazy. Right, I, I mean, I understand she's upset at him and... But even, like, the calling at work kind of tips it off like something else is up there. Um, so, yeah, she comes over. She shows him the suit that he's there looking for. Which he for. thanks her for. Yeah. Cleaning. She got it dry cleaned. Right. And then as he goes over to grab it, she cuts it with fabric scissors. To shreds. And then strips naked in front of him. And and is, like, to me, asking for sex. Yeah. Which, by the way, goes back to the opening scene of sex and nudity yeah which is pretty funny yeah and she says something that the what the marriage counselor or whatever they've been seeing says that she uh, I forget explains her feelings for her and she's not so sure or whatever yeah. so yeah she's definitely like she's she's talking about their relationship uh, the kids aren't there like and she, and then she tells him to leave I, I felt though that she was still much more into the marriage than he was at that point. That for him, I really felt it was over. Yeah. Because he doesn't sleep with her. And to me, she she was almost willing to continue the relationship, my opinion. Well, she's definitely the one who's pursuing him. Right? Yeah. Like she's, and then, I mean, up until this moment, right, everything in the episode, she's been kind of calling after him and checking True. on him. Not he, him. He's standing in the alleyway when her car pulls up and can very easily come out and talk to her if he wanted to, and he doesn't. That's a good point. Uh, and then, you know, waits to go into the house when she's not there. Uh, so, yeah, she's. it seems like she's probably pursuing this, trying to make something happen, and then kind of, like, leads him on to the very end, and then... It was weird. Yeah. And then, you know, it. she calls Kay, I think, after that, and kind of apologizes, because Kay's like... Why don't you just say you're sorry 
And then and it ends up, oh, you're not sorry. So she still... Yeah. She still doesn't know what she wants. Right. And I, I think in, in that scene then, too, is she, like, kind of calling Kay's bluff? Because if she's just seen Bo... That's true, too. Right? She's calling up and she's saying, where That's is he? That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Now she knows that she's actually seen him. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Well, um, so, yeah, uh, I guess the resolution of that kind of resolves the other, uh, the other story, which is what we can talk about, too. What are you going to talk about? Talk about Bo showing up at her house. Yeah. So, and she says, who's at the door? Or her daughter says, who's at the this door? This is Megan Russer we're talking about. Yeah. She, so, so finally in this, towards like the last, like, you know, third of the episode, G says, why don't you go home? Why don't you get out of here? Go take a shower, right. lay down, get some sleep, come back. And so she's going to knock off for a couple hours. She goes home. She goes and sees her kid. And then the doorbell rings. And... You like I mean my assumption is oh there's a break in the case that's what I thought right we had that moment just before where Tim finds the right hinge is broken or whatever. right and uh, uh, yeah she says oh it's the milkman uh-huh. right earlier in the episode right. Kay refers to him as a milkman yeah now it comes oh, I didn't catch that yeah now it happens again oh it's the milkman and it's Bo Felton and he says the Kate Jeremy guy who the was, lead the lead that he was following was in Colorado, totally... Not, can't be him. Can't be him. And then they start making out. They go for it right in the doorway. So, obviously, she's been the one having an affair with him. Yeah. Which, I'll tell you, as a, even as a jaded <laughs> TV viewer, I was still like, what? Well, even more than that, like, how many times have we watched Homicide? Like, I totally did not... I. Right. Forgot about this. Yeah, uh, this story I, I totally forgot, um, and did not see that coming. Uh, that was unexpected. Yeah, it was new to me. Um, but uh, yeah, what a what a surprise! What a reveal! Um, and again, really, I think the the general message, and I I don't mean to keep retreading over this, but that thing that's brought up in the beginning about the show being, you know, sensationalized, like that move of having Bo. Having an affair with his shift with the, commander, yeah, with the other shift commander, does not feel like a homicide season one or two plotline. Agree. You know, it's 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 a departure. It has nothing to do with the murders, or you know, more of like this existential life philosophy thing. This is like, you know, titillating gossip. Right. It, it was more like a TV show would do, and not what we've come. To expect. I think that's exactly the way to put it. Yeah, more like a TV show for a TV show that was anything but. Right. Um, which, again, I don't think that's so terrible. I don't think that's so terrible. We can talk about that a little bit more. So, um, the uh, let's talk about Russert and G. Uh, sure. Kind of their their storyline. And let's really follow this character, Russert, because uh, she does a fantastic job. It's, I love this character a lot. And what's good is... Except for Kay, who calls her a bitch, and and some of the her own detectives making wise ass remarks, she is respected, and the fact that Al Giardello likes her says a lot to me. Right. He didn't come across like she got it because she's a woman. No. Even though Kay defends her, by the way, she still calls her a bitch at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, they have their moment. 
kind of later in the episode. Um, yeah, I think that respect comes in in a lot of uh, uh, showing details throughout the episode. I think they really do a great job of presenting her as someone who commands respect. Yes. Um, but but right, you're right. Her crew doesn't seem these goofball idiots that she, she has working for. Mormons. Yeah, don't seem to respect her in that same way. And you know, kind of speak. And she is new, by the way, to them. Right. She is new. Yeah. Um, but it kind of speaks to this like boys' club mentality and the old school way of doing things, which you know is something that still happens today. Uh, and that was happening 20, 24 years ago, 25 right. years ago. Um, so, yeah, we find that there's a real uh, connection, a real friendship between her and G. Um, he's like a mentor to right. her. And she's, she's, she seems willing to let him he's be. He's totally supportive and nice to her. And, like, when she does turn to him and she says, like, what should I be doing or what could I be doing... She, it seems like she's pretty much doing it. He's really just kind of cheering her along rather than trying to guide the ship. Agree. Um, so, uh, um, so she uh, kind of has like a, her little meeting where she debriefs everybody. And, oh yeah, so they start talking yeah. about her sex life. Uh, we find out that her husband has died. Died. Uh, and she has a six-year-old Daughter. Daughter. And would want more children, or want right. more children. And then her team is saying that she's banging the commissioner's brother. Right. Or the commissioner. Yeah, Kay says that. Or right. the commissioner. But I think she says it kind of tongue As a joke. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and there's this really awesome moment in that, too, where, where Frank is asking this guy, Gaffney. <laughs> Gaffney, who is, like, uh, I guess character foil for Frank. Like, just the total... Total opposite. The night and day difference of Frank Pembleton uh, is this idiot Gaffney, and they share a desk. And Frank is talking about him uh, uh, moving the chair up and down the desk. <laughs> Which is typical homicide stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Such a great homicide joke there where Gaffney says something that rubs uh, Frank the wrong way, gets up and leaves. Frank sits down in the chair and pops it down to his the level that he likes. And then. Uh, Gaffney. Gaffney comes back, sits down, and falls out right. of the chair. That was great. <laughs> um, and just the whole, um, all the scenes between Gaffney and Frank. I mean, Gaffney is such a jerk. Frank is trying to be helpful, and Gaffney doesn't respect him. Yeah. Period. Yeah, I, one of the strengths of this episode, and it probably comes with some of this more, like this idea of like a more sensationalized uh, presentation, they manage to cram so much personality in these characters who are meeting for the first time. True. You get so much from Russell. Right. You get so much from Gaffney. You learn a lot about Gaffney. Even that, even that one scene with the nun, right? I feel like that nun is like a totally fleshed yeah. out character. Yeah. Um, so everybody kind of gets a moment in this episode. And we're lear- we're taking in a lot of information. It move- it's moving quick. Um, so um, let's see. We're Russell and G. Um, oh, she has her meeting that we don't see. We see her after the meeting with um, Barnfather and the PR people and the people from the church where the body was found and their PR people and they're trying to figure out you know how they're gonna announce this. Yeah, present all the information. Um, her idea being. They don't want to present anything right. uh, until they 
have this, you know, tr hopefully try to solve something first. Um, so you want to talk about that scene when Gaffney and Frank go at it, and Megan intervenes? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. Go ahead. So um, th they. Uh, Frank it seems to be on this kick that this is a crime of passion. Perversion. Yeah, perversion. And uh, Gaffney thinks that it is... A sex crime. A sex crime. So he, he's following... He's really into following this lead, which was the scene with the nun that was really interesting. There was someone who the victim had stood up to at a hospital. Who right. was It was a rapist. And had raped someone that she was who she worked with at the volunteer right. at the, where she volunteered. Um, so this seems like a logical person who would want to murder her. The person mm -hmm. has terrible tendencies already and might be mad at them. So Gaffney wants to follow that lead, and Frank kind of has this mm -hmm. Frank Pembleton way of looking at it, where he says this doesn't. It's a waste of time. Yeah, this doesn't. Don't pursue it. It the, the shoe doesn't fit here. Right, and and you kind of agreed with Frank. Based upon what he said about the gloves, I'm kind of like, Frank's probably right. Yeah, after everything we know about him, like, right. when do you ever right. say no to him? Right. Uh, yeah, of course, he, he must he must be right here. Um, so him and Gaffney kind of go to blows. And the, the great point that Frank brings up that I think shouldn't be overlooked is he says, you're trying to save your own ass. Like, you're trying to uh, grasp at every straw to make yourself look good uh, and so you, you don't look like an idiot. You're not trying to find who killed this person. Right, which is our goal. Yeah, and which is what Frank is doing. So uh, he, they kind of showed up, show, uh, he shows him up a little bit. They go to hit each other. They get in each other's face. He calls him boy. Uh, in like, I mean, it is a, it's a racist thing to totally. say. Uh, but like, especially the way he delivered it. Yes. Is, is absolutely just um, disgusting. Um, they get up, they get into each other's faces, and Russert comes out and kind of breaks them up. And I, I, I think I missed even where where she pulls the gun. She it's takes Frank's, Frank's gun, gun out somehow. Yeah, and she presents it to him, and she's like, "Look, if you're gonna if you're gonna <laughs> fight, shoot him and get it over right, with." Right, right. And Gaffney, here you can have the gun. Shoot him. Yeah, I said it was. It King was a really good way of. Diffusing situation. Yeah, King Solomon esque. I had in my in and, my and G G liked it. Oh yeah, yeah. Of course he would. G's like good move. Yeah. Did you learn the um, psychology <laughs> at the academy or whatever? Um, and then uh, this is the in the scene we get in, interjected this other new character, a strong character of the newscaster, who is there to. Get information. Uh -huh. He walks in with a camera. Yes, that was so funny. She asks, "Like, who are you?" Or, uh -huh. You know, she doesn't know his name or whatever. Right. And it's like you probably, you probably would, or you'd be able to guess. Right. Uh, this is bad news. Totally, this is bad news. Um, they go up to the roof and have uh, a conversation. Off the record. Yes, yeah, for the most part. Somehow he knows about the white gloves that were on this body, um, and she's. I mean, she's. Playing ball with him, you know, like she's giving him information. He has a tape recorder. Right she, there. She's smart. She does the usual. You'll you'll get to know first if you keep quiet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Don't I break the gloves. Yeah. Don't break this bit of news. Um, it's funny. I was watching. I was like, oh man, who would be leaking 
the information to the news. Who do you think it is? I don't know. It's got to be Gaffney, right? You think so? It's got to be Gaffney. Yeah. Why? Like, why wouldn't he? Even I don't know. I won't know. I won't say that he's doing it on purpose or he's doing it for money or anything. I could see him just flubbing right. up because he's right. just a goof. Um. So yeah. So uh, after that scene on the roof, Russert goes and finds Kay, kind of like I guess exhausted, standing by the men's room. Yeah, <laughs> but that was a little weird scene. It's uh, written it's very. Like, what are you looking for? Yeah, it's. Un- and Kay has no answer. It's uncharacteristic of Kay Howard to kind of be at a loss of words, right? And almost like starstruck a little bit. Like she really looks up to. Russell. Yeah, she got nervous. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was a weird little scene. Yeah, and and Russert kind of like digs into Kay a little bit and is like, you know, wake up, we got work to do. Doesn't she ask about Bo, by the way? Yeah. Which, looking back on it, was a little weird. Well, it's, you know what, it makes kind of, it makes sense now. I was trying to figure that out, too. On one hand, you could say that maybe Russert is a little jealous of Kay. Hmm. Or, like, maybe she ex- expects she that know. some kind of... True. Uh, relationship there. Um, or, or, you know, maybe there has been or some history. Um, but then also, like, Russert knows exactly where Bo is. Of course. And where he's going to be. Right. So when she's kind of prodding him and she said, oh, he's catching another case, she's definitely caught Kay Howard in and a lie. lie. Yeah. But she doesn't pursue it because it would hurt her. Yeah. Making Russert. It's a right? weird, like, psychological... Right. I didn't think of that till then. It's yes. like a prisoner's dilemma thing. Or something, um, yeah, it's weird. Um, but she is kind of uh, coming down hard on Kay. Kay's really getting beat up this episode. Agree. Uh, nothing's nothing's going her way. I, I thought one of the last scenes with Megan when she redirects everyone to do everything again was powerful because it showed her command and control and. The right instincts. It was like, Frank and Tim, you're going to do this. Gaffney, you're going to do this. So-and-so. I thought that was very good. It was like, you're going to double-check everything. Yeah. And that and, was... and, and, and we realized that sending Frank and Bayless to a scene where others have been, we think it's going to be important because they found that door. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, and she's also her. Uh, what she tells Gaffney to do is to get the um, what the warrant to go into the records. Yes, at, where to she get the names. Yeah, to get names. So she is kind of letting him follow on his instinct. Right. Um, I thought that. I thought that that was good. Showed a lot of command. Yeah. Um, we have a a moment after that. Where Kay is covering for Bo again, the wife calls. So this is the call after she's turned him away, and then our end of the episode, which you already talked about, right. where Bo shows up at uh, yep. Russert's house, and uh, they're kissing in her hallway. Um, you want to talk about the bar purchase? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. I think that, like easily uh-huh. the most fun, <laughs> even in the way that like this is a silly story that doesn't have anything to really do with anything. Uh, it feels like a very homicide yes. storyline, but the prospect of buying a bar mm. is so heightened and strange that it doesn't, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it came from nowhere. <laughs> yeah. It is so silly, and I love what they, I love what they do with it. Um, 
but it is definitely this homicide, you know, 2.0 that we're experiencing in this episode. And I'm glad they didn't let Stan cave in. I mean, Stan stays Stan. And he's like, look, I don't bet on the... I'm, I'm not doing it. Yeah. Get out of my face. Yeah. And they're so disappointed. Well, Tim walks in, and Tim also, kind of like Bo, looks like crap. He's dropping... Yeah. The eye drops in, and his hair looks all tussled. His tie is undone. Um, he looks a lot older. Like, he looks like from season hey, two to right. season three. He look, uh, not older, mature. Yeah. Like, he looks like a regular homicide detective, whereas before he always looked like a fresh face, you know? Yeah. Um, so he comes in, Munch and Lewis are, are kind of shooting the breeze, and they tighten up when Tim comes over. And Tim is convinced they are talking about him. <laughs> And uh, Munch kind of tells him, like, we're talking, we're thinking about buying this bar. And it seems like something Munch would say to get... Right. And Tim doesn't even buy it. Yeah. Just made up. Don't lie to me. Uh, But Tim kind of, it kind of feeds in with um, that he looks so disheveled because he's acting like a little paranoid. Um, So, uh, a little bit later, uh, Munch and Stan are kind of talking about... Uh, morality and they're talking about it kind of I guess follows from that conversation up top about the gratuitousness Mm -hmm. of television although at this point they're talking about you know other topics and then kind of out of nowhere Munch says like you know how we're trying to buy this bar we need someone else Uh they're not coming down on price right so we want you to which (laughs) Stan does not you're you're right. He's you're barking not, up the wrong tree. Right under any for a multitude of reasons, I could not understand. Why would he ever do anything but munch? Outside of work, yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. And that's I mean I love I think they love each other. I think they love their relationship, but I think it begins and ends in the homicide Agreed. office. You know, um, but stands along for the ride. Maybe he'll get a free lunch or a free <laughs> breakfast out of it. He's at the bar. He meets the chef. And Munch and Lewis have this, like, crazy spread of food. A big man, big meal. <laughs> yeah, he says they're going to make Stan Bolander uh, the face of their store. Right, right. Like Wendy from Wendy's. Yeah. Or Dave, 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 Dave from, from Wendy's. Wendy's. Um, uh, yeah, that is... Which that... would seem like they totally made that up <laughs> on the fly to get him interested. Just to get him in. Speak to his vanity, which again does not seem like a stand. Doesn't work. Yeah, um, well, a really great joke in that scene too. Uh, that it kind of punctuates the scene. Earlier, Lewis is selling them on this idea that the bar is going to sell breakfast, and they're going to make increase their money tenfold. Which is the when have you ever ate breakfast in a bar? Right. That's the worst idea in the world. That's not a good idea. Um, no one, no one's at bars that early. Uh, so he, but he's really selling this idea, and he's saying, "Oh, it's the most important meal of the day." And then punctuates the scene with saying, "He doesn't want to eat any of the food because he does not eat breakfast." Right. When, when the deal falls apart, the true feeling that was very funny. Yeah, I don't eat breakfast. <laughs> um, so at the end, they do get Tim interested. Yep, and. Well, we'll see where it goes. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, this is I one of what really becomes like a, one of the coolest uh, personalities of the TV show Homicide is the ownership of this bar and that yes. kind of becoming this like hangout place for them. 
This is a really great move for the show. It is a good move. Uh, Whoever thought of it, it was a great idea. Yeah, and works out set-wise... It is literally across the street. Right, they don't have to go anywhere. From from their location. Correct, the in, station. In real life. Right, right. Like, not just on the show. In real right. life, it's directly across the street. So they can shoot in one building, come on down, shoot, shoot in the other. Shoot in the other. What are we missing here, I guess? Well, there's some great lines about religion between Frank and Tim mm-hmm. interspersed. They talk about what religion are they... Frank makes some contradictory statements as to what he believes. You would say he definitely believes, but it's it's questionable. He's is is he he's not devout, but I think he believes because he says to Tim, "You took communion. You shouldn't have done that." Like, why does he care? Yeah, because he still. He's still involved yeah. somehow. And he that's his, in that same scene, he says there are two types of Catholic. There's devout and fallen. Yes. And he says he is fallen. Right. Um, it, it's funny. I I think you're right. I think he does believe and he is, he definitely is under the influence of the ceremony of, and all the aspects that he would, he would be concerned about someone eating the well, Eucharist. Is, is he the one that said uh, evil exists? So therefore, God exists. Yeah, right. That's Frank again. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, I, because I was thinking that it seems like he doesn't believe, but he's like hedging his bet. I agree. Like he's trying to play nice just in case. Um, yeah. Uh, they, yeah, that scene where he's saying death is, uh, death means he- eternal happiness in heaven or whatever, and that that should be something to look forward to, not something that is... right. That right. someone's worried about. Yeah, I would say Frank is on the fence. Well, and, and Tim says to him, well, what do you think? And uh-huh. Frank is like, that's why I wear a, a, bullet- a bulletproof vest. Yeah. So, right. uh, yeah, this whole episode, he's, he's kind covering of, all the all the bases. Yeah, showing the yin and the yang of Frank Pembleton. Um, yeah, this is... This, uh, I mean, you know, Frank is such an awesome character. I think anyone who's seen Homicide up to this point knows it and expects it. But he really, uh, I think, steps it up in this uh, in this episode. Um, one of the things, from Homicide 1.0 to Homicide 2.0, one of the things intact is that uh, Frank is an interesting, uh, complicated character to follow along. When you think about it, and you mentioned this before, they jammed an awful lot into this episode a lot. Yeah. Different characters, details about characters we already know. It was, they jammed a lot. Yeah. Um, and and, and in, a, in a good way. I don't mean in a bad way. Right. There, there were uh, things in the editing in this episode that were so strange. Um, a lot of like people talking right into each other's face. So you could have these tight shots with both characters there talking to each other and make it, it just made this like really, it made it feel really tense throughout the episode. Um, they which, did a good job portraying the Red Bull atmosphere, I thought. Right. It was crazy. Yeah. Um, and even some of the dialogue, like when, um, when they're getting into who this person was, when G and Russert are talking for the first time. All that dialogue didn't feel... It felt more like 
Uh, Catherine Goodrich. Yeah, that's the <laughs> the body. Yeah. Um, when they were talking about her and where they found the body and uh, that first scene with G and, and Russert, it didn't feel like a homicide script. Um, the the gory way that the presentation of the murder and this one feels like a mystery a little bit where you're trying to figure out well what do the white gloves mean and what does it mean if she, what yeah. if it means if she didn't yeah. have any sexual activity but she's right. naked and the location whereas it's never I mean we said in a previous episode it's never about the the murder the case yeah it's right. not about the case it's about the cops right and this episode feels a little about the case agree especially at the end when they find that broken lock you're right it's one of the first times you're a little bit interested in the case yeah because normally you don't care because it's not important yeah like the i mean the closest we get probably is like the episode with the araber and adina watson's case but like that is like so beautifully open-ended even in that episode, we don't know if he did it or did, didn't do it, right. right? And I don't think the writers of the show know if he did or yep. didn't do it. Because really, for the purpose of the show, it doesn't matter. Correct. Whereas it feels like this one is a lot more... does matter. <laughs> you know, it's a lot more cut and dry and a lot more black and white than we've seen. It'll before. be interesting to see where the show goes from here. How is the second episode? The red ball confuses things, meaning it makes it a different episode right away there's only one case so it'll be interesting to see what happens when things settle yeah there's a, a, a thing with law and order that i i haven't uh, and i'll be honest this is a terrible uh for our listeners cover your ears i'm not a huge law and order fan i haven't seen a, a ton of it but i know from talking to people that there's a point in the episode where you know you've in, been introduced to every character that's going to be in this Episode, so you must know who the killer. What the killer's one right. of the three people you right. talk to. I don't think we've talked to the killer yet. Oh, I don't think so either. Or I would be very surprised if we did, um, which is strange to have that sense of like I want to figure it out. You know, uh, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Yeah. So, Joe, who is your um, hero of the episode? I'm gonna say it's the 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 young blood, the new Lieutenant Russert. Uh, I, I would agree. I think it, impressive character, uh, you know, seems to be doing the right thing up till the last second. <laughs> she right. really had us rooting for her, and then, what are you doing? Um, yeah, I would agree. She's definitely, she comes on strong in a good way. Yeah. Good way to introduce a new character. Yeah. And who would you say was the kind of the loser? Uh, I mean... I guess the obvious pick is Gaffney because it just seems like that guy's always been a loser, slime ball, and he's into it. Uh, I'm going to say Kay Howard. Uh, you know what? I would go with Kay more than Gaffney. Really? Because Kay knows better. Gaffney's an idiot. Well, how do you mean she knows better? What should she she's be doing? A better, she's a better detective. Like, keep your game face on. Don't let the new watch commander see that you're like... Not paying attention. Yeah. Don't even know what your partner's doing. Yeah, I, I would say I would definitely go for her. Yeah. Yeah, she she definitely, she gets caught by everyone. And I mean, she is under the the influence of Bo Felton, who up until this episode, like, was just the worst example of a homicide detective. Right. I mean, 
I would say no one in this second shift can hold a candle to Bo, but... Uh, but she's never let the relationship affect her the way it affected her this episode. Do you think it would make sense for Kay in this instance to tell him, like, hey, no, forget your family stuff, we need you here? I, I think it would have. Yeah. If there was ever a time, that was the time. But think of how weird that would have been. So weird. She wouldn't have mentioned the new watch commander. Oh, man. Yeah. So, hmm. So, Joe, anything else on the episode? Uh, no, I mean, I think that's it. There's, I, it feels like we're probably missing one or two yeah. brilliant lines or I'm sure we are. other kind of weird stuff. But, uh, no, I, uh, like I said, Homicide 2.0, this, the show, d- distinct difference, uh, in, from the show that we've seen before. And, um, yeah, excited to see where the rest of the season takes us. Joe, if people want to contact us or make comments, how do they do that? They can reach us on Twitter uh, at Red to Black Pod or Gmail. Uh, you can email us uh, from Red to Black at gmail.com. And we will answer all of them, maybe not immediately, but soon. And we love the comments we've already gotten. I can tell you, we got one email which just made my day. Well, we've gotten many emails. Yeah, but I, I one, meant, I one meant in particular. One, one in particular, and it was just like. You made my day, brother. I don't know who you are, but you made it all worthwhile. Yeah, uh, the enthousi- there's nothing like the enthusiasm of a Homicide fan, because I think for so long uh-huh. I walked around thinking, like, oh, Pete, no one knows about this show, yeah. that when you find someone else, it's like, you too? Like, you get it. Um, so, You're yeah, right, that's part of it. Drop us a line, we'll keep you enthused too, and um, keep listening. Uh, and that is another episode... From Red to Black. Thanks. <laughs>